Good morning. Once again, my name is Natalie Cole from the marketing team at Dickerson Insurance Services. We're very happy you could join us for today's webinar titled Broker Compensation Past, Present, and Future. Next slide, please. My name is Natalie Cole. And of course, if you have any questions, you can reach me by phone. Um, but it's always quickest to reach me by email, nataliec at dickerson-group.com. Today's course, like I mentioned earlier, is called Broker Compensation Past, Present, and Future. It's been approved by the California Department of Insurance for one credit hour. Our CE presentations are recorded and copies of both the recording and the slide deck are available for your download within 48 hours after today's presentation. They will also come from my email directly. So definitely be on the lookout for my email address within the next one to two days. We report CE credits to the Department of Insurance within two working days of the presentation. We have been instructed to ask polling questions throughout the presentation. For this presentation in particular, there are three polling questions. So please be sure to answer all three to be eligible for CE credits. Your responses are recorded. And of course, in order to answer the polling questions, it's recommended that you use a computer as opposed to a, a cell phone. If you have any technical difficulties in answering the questions or things like that, because we know technology can be a little bit unreliable, go ahead and shoot me an email. Once again, it's nataliec at dickerson-group.com and I will definitely help you in any way that I possibly can. But lastly, but not least, if you have questions, Please type your questions in the chat box in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen, and we will answer the questions at the conclusion of your presentation today. Next slide. Now for today's presenter. Today's presenter is Mr. David Fear Sr. He is a 42-year veteran of the employee benefits industry who specializes in alternative funding, flexible benefits, and group purchasing arrangements. He is the managing partner of Scheffler and Fear which is a division of Dickerson Insurance Services and Alera Group Company. He is also the past president of the National and California Associations of Health Underwriters and the 2015 recipient of the Nahu Harold R. Gordon Memorial Award as Health Insurance Person of the Year. Dave, so Dave, that's quite impressive. How are you this morning? I'm great, Natalie. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for asking. Good. Thanks for that introduction and welcome everyone. Uh, uh, we're uh, up here and uh, I'm up here in Northern California today. We had a little bit of an earthquake this morning around uh, uh, 5 a.m. I uh, found out about it later because it didn't wake me up, so it couldn't have been very bad. But uh, California continues to shake. Um, I'm, I'm doing OK without uh, without the fires, so I'll, I'll, I'll take those small quakes. Um, by the way, I wanted to mention that our sponsor today is Dickerson Insurance Services and Alera Group Company. Uh, Alera is a full uh, Alera Dickerson is a full service general agency with distribution partners uh, of, with more than two dozen individual, small group, and large group insurers and health plans. We do business throughout uh, California and are licensed in all states, and have been in business since 1965, providing advisors like you consultative services and multiple product lines, including life, health, ancillary, property, casualty, and other lines of coverage. So reach out to us at thebrokersga.com on the internet. If you have uh, 
further questions. Today's agenda looks like this. Um, this is a presentation that I, I actually put together uh, earlier this year and, and did a kind of a trial run presentation out in uh, Riverside for uh, one of the health underwriters associations. And at that time it was given not as a CE course, but just as a inform informative course. Since that time, we've had it approved by the Department of Insurance. So this is the uh, first time we've uh, re reached out, rolled out this course as a uh, an official CE course. We're gonna talk about four or five things today. Uh, wanna provide you with some historical perspectives about costs and compensation. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, why health insurance rates and broker commissions are under scrutiny right now. Uh, present to you some really good information by the Kaiser Family Foundation study that was done on uh, broker compensation. Uh, have a, a little discussion about uh, whether or not the free market works to control costs. And then we'll spend a, a bit of time on the new uh, requirements of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, the CAA. Uh, we'll, we'll then conclude with a discussion about the broker's advisor's role as a agent broker, consultant duties and compensation issues related to that and uh, summarize it and conclude things and answer your questions. So uh, hold on to your seats and we'll, we'll get moving ahead here. First, I wanna share with you a little story uh, that's kind of close to my heart. Back in 1980, I sold my first um, group health sale to a, a small school district in Southern Colorado. They bought a major medical plan with a $100 deductible, 20% coinsurance, $1,000 maximum out of pocket and a quarter of a million dollar lifetime maximum. They had about 120 uh, members uh, of that school district with, with employees and, and dependents. And the rates at that time, believe it or not, were $21.50 per employee per month, $40 to $5.50 for employee with dependents. So that was their family rate. And it generated a whopping total of $2,700 a monthly premium. At that time, the contract that I had with uh, Mutual of Omaha, who is the carrier involved with that, paid me a 12% first year commission and a 10% renewal, which amounted to about $323 a month total in the first year. And it came out to $2.69 per member per month. So that's what, uh, that's what rates and broker compensation look like uh, 42 years ago for me. Uh, the last group health sale I, I ever had personally was in 2021. It was a small non-union welding firm in West Sacramento, California. They purchased a silver HMO plan with a $2,500 deductible, 30% coinsurance, $5,500 maximum out of pocket. And of course, uh, under the, the, the rules of uh, the Affordable Care Act, it had unlimited lifetime maximum benefits. There are a total of 19 members in this small group and the average monthly premium um, rates, of course, are based on member level rates, but the average rate for an employee in that group, 455 a month and the average family rate, $1,330 a month uh, for a total of $8,960 a monthly, total monthly premium. Uh, I'm, I'm earning uh, on that particular account 5% first year commission and 5% renewal, which comes out to $448 a month. But interestingly enough, my, my compensation uh, is $23.58 per member per month. 
So quite a bit of difference in both premium rates and compensation rates over the last 40 uh, some odd years. And, and I think that uh, puts us in a position to say, well, wh wh why, why these differences? Um, well, first off, we know that between 1980 and 2021, healthcare costs have increased ninefold, nine times what they were back in 1980. And we can back that up with a lot of the survey data, which has gone on over the years, especially from the, the government, which talks about the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the healthcare industry and, and the costs involving that. During that same time period, health insurance premium rates increased 11-fold. And uh, interestingly enough, health insurance commissions increased eightfold. So not exactly uh, one for one based on costs and premium rates and commissions, but, but nonetheless, huge increases. It's interesting to note that the number of uninsured people increased as coverage became less affordable. It went from about 3% to more than 15% of uninsured people in uh, the country. And, and at one point, it was higher than 15% uh, until the uh, Affordable Care Act was passed. Um, during this time period, the federal and state governments tried numerous times to uh, fix things. They, they passed bills such as TEFRA, COBRA, HIPAA uh, here in California, AB 1672. We had the Clinton Health Care Plan, the Medicare Modernization Act, and of course, as most of you know, the Affordable Care Act. And, all of these things that I just mentioned seem to focus on reforming health insurance, but not really the, the cost of health care. Uh, we all know what the Affordable Care Act did and didn't do. It expanded coverage to both uh, uh, through an, both an individual and an employer mandate. It limited the insurance company's profit margin, also known as the uh, MLR or minimum loss ratio rule. It imposed new taxes and fees. It offered subsidies for private coverage for people to, to purchase private coverage. Uh, it set national standards for benefits, pricing, and carrier regulation, but it did not address the increasing cost of healthcare. So health insurance costs have come under a lot of scrutiny. And as I mentioned, the Affordable Care Act and this minimum loss ratio requirement uh, became law, and, and in both the individual and the small group markets, carriers are now required to spend 80% of premium on paid claims. 80 cents on every dollar of premium has to be spent on claims. In the large group market, that requirement is 85%. And um, failure to spend up to these amounts results in the carriers paying rebates to their policyholders. And there was an interesting uh, announcement that just went out this week. Uh, by uh, in the press about uh, upcoming rebates that will be paid uh, later this year. Um, and while the, these MLR rules made the carriers focus on uh, administrative costs, it diverted their attention from reducing the cost of healthcare services for which there's no limit under the law. So think about it this way. Um, if, if, if I'm an insurance company and I'm gonna have a $100 expense that I'm gonna pay out in claims, and I'm required to meet this 80% MLR rule, that means that I'm going to charge a minimum of $125 in premium, because 80% uh, of $125 is $100, and that's what would be allocated to pay those expenses. So you, you might say that, you know, while these 
carrier profits and administrative expenses came under a lot of scrutiny early on. Um, and, and as a result of that, it, it makes the single payer advocates very angry. And that's a, probably a story for another day. But broker compensation has come under scrutiny as well. Uh, nearly every year since the ACA passage in 2010, the broker community has asked Congress for that commissions be excluded from these MLR uh, calculations. So let me be clear about this. Um, you know, under the current MLR rules, the compensation that's paid to brokers are included in the in the insurance companies or health plans administrative costs. And we've tried to get that excluded over the years. The unintended consequence of asking for that exclusion, though, was that it now put broker compensation under more scrutiny, the same way that carrier profits were being viewed. Uh, you know, well, how much money is a carrier making here and, and this and that. So it's kind of a two-edged sword when we when we uh, look at this, and, and I, I want you to keep that in mind as we go forward. Uh, studies have been conducted that sought out the real facts about how much or how little brokers were paid to sell health insurance to individuals, small and large employers. And prior to these studies, there was a lot of misinformation about broker compensation. So that brings us to our first polling question, which we'd like you to all respond to. Um, question number one is, the minimum loss ratio rules of the ACA include broker commission as an administrative cost. Is that statement true or false? And uh, I'm gonna play my Jeopardy music here. Give you about 30 seconds or so to respond to that. Natalie, how are we doing? We uh, we are almost at one minute. Okay. We're almost there. So we'll give about like 10, 15 more seconds. Um, also, just a reminder, remember to be eligible for CE credit, you have to answer all three polling questions. This is the first one out of the three. Just in case that that motivates anyone. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and close this, close the poll. And uh, how did uh, how did our folks answer? 82% voted true. That's right. Very good. Okay. Thank you, Natalie. Appreciate that. All right. So so I want to talk uh, a minute about this Kaiser Family Foundation. They they conducted a broker compensation uh, survey. Uh, the method that they used was, uh, I think, fairly sophisticated. They they, they took broker fees and direct sales per member per month that were that were reported by the uh, carriers. And then they divided that by the sum of all agent and broker fees and commissions and direct sales, um, you know, expenses. This would include direct salaries and benefits in a state where the total, uh, um, you know, there is no broker commission or if the carrier is selling those things directly they counted that as a, as a compensation expense. And then they divided it into the individual, the small group and the large group markets. 
Um, the sources that they used on this survey, by the way, came from uh, the Health Coverage Portal, which is a market database maintained by the Mark Farah Associates, which includes information from both the NAIC, uh, California's Department of Managed Care, and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Uh, many med companies, by the way, with a medical focus were included. So one thing to consider here is that while the ACA went into effect in 2011, but the full reforms uh, of the ACA really didn't go into effect until 2014, you know, guaranteed issue and, and rate regulation, what have you. So let's, uh, let's take a look at what this, uh, this survey found out. This chart, which I know is a little busy, and I apologize for this, um, shows or tracks um, the average commission. This blue line here is starting at $12.83 per, per uh, uh, member per month um, is the uh, IFP, the individual US average for compensation. As you can see, it, it, it uh, started at around an average of 12.83 PMPM and it got up to 14.23 by the year 2020. So in this 10 year time period, it raised a little bit. The other two uh, uh, deals, the one in orange right above that is the California average. Again, California started out at about 1466. It dropped down, then back up, then down and up. And, and as of 2020 was an average of $10.86. The, uh, the uh, top gray line is the individual um, family um, average for the highest uh, uh, compensation paid out by a, by a particular carrier. And so, for example, in the year 2011, uh, in the state of New Jersey, they reported uh, an $18.46 per uh, member per month um, broker commission. Whereas in the lowest state, which was Vermont, down in this uh, yellow average at the bottom, they were at 93 cents. Now, two points to remember is that in the Vermont market at that time, they didn't really pay uh, individual uh, brokers commissions. Uh, so the cost you see here were based on the cost of salaries paid to carrier employees selling that. So you get a, get a feel, you know, you've got the highest state up here at the top. And, and if I go over to 2020, it reported that Minnesota was the highest uh, state of compensation at $25.44 uh, PM PM, whereas in uh, Virginia, interestingly enough, was the lowest at 68 cents. And then you've still got California at 14.23 in the national average. I'm sorry, California at 10.86 and the national average of 14.23. So this is what the individual market looked like. Uh, over a 10-year period. Um, keep in mind, you know, guaranteed issue didn't begin until 2014. So you saw an increase in the minimum cost that year because uh, there were a number of one-time expenses to set up state exchanges per the ACA. And uh, note California compared to the minimum at that time, we set up a, our own state exchange. And so there was more cost for that. My guess is that the lowest state costs probably reflect direct sales expenses and not broker commissions. Several states have never paid broker commissions in the IFG market, and they still don't. The highest cost states probably reflect compensation that's tied directly to 
commission and premium, which reflect a higher uh, increase over time, closer to the escalating premium rates. That's just an observation on my part based on the data that we saw. Now let's take a look quickly at the small group market history that they reported. Small groups, um, very different. Even though it has similar rating and guaranteed issue rules in the individual market, small group market is um, um, very different. And as you can see here, uh, beginning in 2011, the national average for broker commission came out to $19.66. That's this blue line here, 1966 per employee per month um, in uh, national average. The highest state was Alaska at that time, $29.40. California right underneath that at $25.83. And then way down at the bottom in the state from the state of Alabama was a buck oh nine for small group. You say, well, why was uh why was it so low in Alabama? And I'll 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 come back to that in a minute. Um, but as you can see here, it's remained fairly steady uh nationally. It's it's gone up to 2254. Uh, that was reported in 2020, whereas the highest compensation, interestingly enough, was found in New Hampshire that year, $46.74. Uh, California had dropped down to $20.25. And of course, the uh, lowest was $1.38 uh, in, again in the state of Virginia. Uh, I find that to be very interesting. Uh, overall compensation in this market started out about 50% higher than in the individual market and has remained that way uh, through 2020. Even though the rating structure and the MLR rules are the same in, in both the individual and the small group market, it, it's interesting how that compensation uh, still was 50% higher in the, in the small group market. Uh, broker compensation in this market, as many of you know, is built in the filed rate, similar to the way the individual market's handled. And there's no option to sell net of commission, uh, a net of commission product in the marketplace uh, here, at least here in California. Uh, attempts have been made to introduce some product variations that have different commissions, but most have not been successful because of outright broker rejection. Brokers would just say, I'm not gonna sell that if it's if it's not gonna pay me. And uh, that, that keeps things uh, very interesting. One other comment here, we are very lucky in the California market to have competition. Um, you, you know, I know that sometimes we get a little bit disturbed with uh, some of the things our carriers do, but I'll tell you something, we are really blessed to not live in, in, in a place like uh, Alabama or Vermont where you don't have a lot of competition. One of the reasons why broker commissions are so low in Alabama is that there's one carrier there that dominates the market with 90% of the market, and uh, they just don't feel like they they have to pay brokers uh, a lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, you know money. So that's uh, that's an issue. In the large group market, we have a similar uh, information. Obviously, it's it's uh, lower than in small group. Again, it started out 10 years ago. Uh, at 50, uh, the average was uh, 775 per uh, member per month. California was right about that same amount at 711. And as you can see, both the California and the national averages have tracked very closely together. Whereas in the highest markets, uh, it's been very interesting. 
whereas uh, in the low markets, it's still uh, down there at a very uh, low average. Uh, again, New Jersey uh, and Hawaii compared to uh, New Hampshire and, and West Virginia uh, in 2020, 10 years later. So my observations are, are that while overall compensation in this market continues to be about 60% less than in the small group market, uh, unlike the small group market, broker compensation is not necessarily built into the rates and in many cases is actually negotiated on a case-by-case -case basis between the employer and the broker. Uh, that market seems to keep everyone honest in that there's always been disclosure and transparency in that market of commissions. So that brings us to where do things stand as of 2021? And, and again, this is based on the, the Kaiser Family Foundation uh, annual survey, which you can look up online. You can Google that and, and get that information. It's all online. Uh, in the uh, uh, individual market, the premium per member per month, uh, as reported, is $462, whereas in the small group market, it's higher at $651. The large group market is a little bit lower at $642. Keep in mind that the individual market tends to have higher deductibles and out-of-pocket limits, which will generate lower premium rates, while group plans tend to have richer benefits to attract and retain employees. So, you know, that doesn't mean that the individual market here is is priced less than the small group market. In fact, they're, they're priced very similar right now. But um, what you see is that what's actually being purchased by people in the individual market are, you know, uh, silver and bronze and, and, you know, maybe some gold plans. But, but uh, whereas in small group and large group, employers tend to provide better benefits to attract and retain employees. The compensation per member per month in the individual market is an, an average of 1423. Uh, in the small group market, it's 2254 and large group, it's 997. And if you look at that compensation as a percentage of the premium, that means in the individual market, it's about 3.1% commission, small group three and a half and, and large group 1.6. So it's, you know, it's, it's very clear here that, you know, health insurance brokers are not making a lot of money selling health insurance and, unless they sell a lot of it and run it as a cost, as a cost efficient agency. I mean, that's the bottom line here. It's, it's not like it was, you know, 20 years ago. So that brings us to our next polling question. Natalie, are, st are you still there? I, I know we've had some uh, some issues here. Yes. I, How are we doing? We're good. Okay. Thank you so much. Okay. Our, our polling question is, uh, based on this Kaiser Family Foundation survey, which health insurance market pays the highest broker compensation? Is it the individual, the small group, or the large group market? So let's uh, please uh, see if you can answer that question. that one minute we're going to give everyone about 10 more seconds okay 
and we're going to close it. And the responses are 69% voted small group market. That's right. Very good. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate your input on that. All right. So let's go on to uh, a discussion about whether or not the, quote, free market works or not. Um, as you can see, commissions vary by carrier, by location, and by product. Uh, we don't have a standard commission rate. We don't have standardized products, although I know that we have, you know, these, uh, uh, you know, bronze, silver, gold, um, uh, platinum benefit tiers, but we still have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, open space there for uh, different plan designs and what have you. And of course, you know, carriers are, are free to set their commissions uh, by whatever uh, method they, they feel like they need to do it. Having market competition makes a huge difference. In the markets, as I said before, where there are many carriers and products and buyers, you see more competitive rates, more competitive commissions, and frankly, more competitive products. Um, compare that to certain markets, and, and you know, I don't mean to pick on any one state, but you know, Vermont and, and Hawaii have been examples where you have you don't have a lot of carriers competing there. And so um, brokers kind of have to, and employers uh, buying coverage have to kind of take what they can get. Um, so we, we see higher rates, uh, lower or no commissions and less product innovation in those markets that have little competition. Um, there's no question that the major carriers, however, are moving from a percentage commission to a PMPM -PM arrangement per member per month arrangement or per employee per month arrangement. Um, we're, we're beginning to see that in markets with there is, where there is less competition. Uh, that it, the carriers claim that it makes the MLR compliance easier to, to base uh, those on uh, uh, PMPM numbers as opposed to percentage of, of premiums. And uh, the ACA did give states more regulation of premium rates and indirectly the amount of commission paid to brokers. And I think that's one of the reasons why Congress has not uh, voted in favor of taking broker commissions out of the MLR rules, because they know that if it's included in the MLR rules and the MLR rules are keeping the carriers honest, then they think that's a way indirectly to keep the brokers honest, if you would. I, I don't know that I agree or disagree with that, but I'm just telling you my, my observation from the carrier community is that they, they, they feel like that's, uh, that's fair to all. Um, and then in the individual and the small group market, broker compensation is heavily influenced by carrier competition in the state. And I, I can't say that enough, how lucky we are here in California to have so many different carriers competing for the business. That's, that's good for our clients and it's good for us. And, and, and that's, uh, that's a, that's a win-win deal. There's some other, um, historical things that we may want to think about. Um, again, we're, we're lucky to have competition in California, but uh, the influ it, it's done a lot towards influencing carrier decisions to introduce products that brokers would sell. I remember a few years ago, a, a particular carrier whose name I will not mention came out with this new product that they were going to market through uh, uh, an alternative um, uh, distribution arrangement that they wanted to do. They, they, they said, hey, we're not going to include broker commission in here. And um, guess what? Brokers didn't sell it. And before long, that, that particular carrier said, I, I guess this is a failure because nobody's buying this. And without the brokers helping out, we're, we're just not going to get anywhere. 
So for the most part, brokers have been successful in seeing that we're compensated fairly, but that's been tested over the last 10 years due to the, the ACA and the MLR rules. Remember the days when, when a certain popular carrier did not pay commissions for small group sales at all, okay? And uh, remember when another carrier introduced a product without a broker commission and what that caused. Remember when Mr. Mib and the old Pack Advantage system changed their stance about using and paying brokers. Again, that was 20 years ago, but but the, the point was is that there was a, they saw a need, uh, we need to get, we need to be friends with the brokers and, and so that they'll sell our products. And remember when Covered California first came out and announced that they would use brokers from the outset. Uh, these are things that uh, didn't just happen in a vacuum, they happened because a lot of people you know, demonstrated what, what brokers can and, and should be doing for their client. And, and I think that's important. I think most California carriers today realize that in order to be successful, they need to partner with a cost efficient sales force. And that sales force is frankly the, the independent agent broker or advisor. So now let me talk uh, a little bit about the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, the CAA. Um, Related to health insurance, and there were a lot of things in this act, and we're not going to go through the seven or 800 pages of the bill, but related to health insurance, here's a highlight of some things that you ought to be aware of. First off, it increased the requirements for mental health parity. It uh, required that insurers uh, issue ID cards that have to include additional information that were not on prior cards. Uh, to, to help the uh, member out understand what's what's covered and what's not covered and how it works. There is a uh, balanced billing disclosure that prohibits providers from some types of doing some types of balanced billing. Uh, there's increased disclosure for the explanation of benefit forms that uh, carriers issue. Um, it, it is a requirement that provider directories must meet a higher federal standard regarding a provider's network uh, status and let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that is a tough, a tough, uh, tough deal to do because provider directories, uh, you know, they're they're outdated the moment that they're published. That's why most provider directories now are in fact online, and uh, even then, you, you've got you know uh, may maybe have days, weeks, or even months between when a provider is added or um, when they come off of the network. So that's uh, that can be tough. There's um, New pharmacy transparency requirements imposed on group health plans about the use and cost of prescription drugs, and and I think that uh, in the in the big picture, that's a, that's a very good thing to have. Um, it addressed the issue of provider contract gag clauses by removing those clauses regarding the price and quality information uh, that uh, had to be provided. Uh, a lot of providers in the past said, "Look, I've I've got a um, I've got a, a gag clause with this uh, uh, carrier that I'm working with. I can't talk about pricing and quality information. Uh, I'm prohibited by doing that. And so it's removing a lot of those uh, legal requirements. But the big part of, of what we want to talk about is the broker compensation transparency rules that created some new disclosure requirements. That's, that's what we're going to spend a few minutes on today. So in section 202 of the law, it does this. It amends section 408B2 of ERISA and creates new transparency requirements that impact group health plans and their brokers or consultants. Specifically, 
group health plans must receive disclosures from brokers or consultants or their affiliates or subcontractors who reasonably expect to receive $1,000 or more, this will be indexed for inflation, in direct or indirect compensa uh, compensation in connection with providing certain designated insurance-related services for the group health plan. The disclosures include a description of the services, a description of the direct compensation, and a description of indirect compensation, including finder's fees. It goes on to state that it, it, it's in effect for all contracts or covered services that are executed or renewed on or after December 27th, uh, 2021. This is last year. I remember the weeks prior to this getting calls from brokers saying, hey, what are we going to have to do? How am I going to have to do this? And how am I going to comply? And and uh, a, a lot of um, a, a lot of stuff was going on in the month of December anyway, but this, uh, this didn't make things any easier. So uh, there are two really good sources of, of, of complying with this. Uh, NAHU, the National Association of Health Underwriters, has released disclosure templates that can be modified by brokers. And I thought they did a really good job in saying, here's a template that you can use. Uh, it's a Word document. You can come in and make modifications to it, but it it should work uh, based on the discussions that they had uh, with the um, with the feds. Uh, many general agencies, and in, in, including uh, Dickerson General Agency, have also release templates for broker use. Um, and, and, and I think that's important because general agencies as a, as a rule, you know, our, our clients are brokers and we wanna make sure that you're in compliance with what you have to do. So it made sense for us to say, look, here's some templates that you can use. And, and uh, that was very helpful. And, and a lot of that took place. The spirit of the law is that you, is that to tell your clients what you do for them and how much you're paid. That's the spirit of the law here, okay? You can get into a lot of legalese, nitty gritty and this and that, but but um, if, if, the, if you're complying with the spirit of the law, if you're telling your clients what you do and how much you're paid, you're gonna be fine. It may not be perfect, uh, but but you know, you're, you're gonna be okay. So the question comes up is, is disclosure good or bad? I, I think, and this is just my opinion, but in general, I think anything that helps a broker build a more transparent relationship with a client is a good thing. It promotes honesty between the two parties. Uh, you ever wonder why brokers lose a case on a broker of record change? Uh, and, and many times it's because that broker is not doing a very good job of, of letting, keeping his client informed on what goes on and, and is there and, and responds quickly. and does the things that we think that you know brokers should be doing anyway. If they're not hearing from their broker about these issues, um, then why wouldn't I do business with somebody else that's gonna keep me up to speed? I think this has been especially uh, important after the ACA was passed where you've got this employer mandate and these new rating rules and things like that. Disclosure, as we talk about it, has existed for years in the large group market that's the form 5500, which is filled out by the employer or the plan sponsor with information provided by the carrier. And that includes the premium and compensation paid by line of coverage. Um, and and it's, it's again, black and white. And the interesting part of it is it's public information. All these 5500s are public information. Many of you probably 
uh, you know, use those uh, public information databases to, to do prospecting. But it puts, the, it puts the average broker on notice that they must provide real service to their client. And I think that's, I think that's really an important issue here. So what is the role of advisors and brokers? And, you know, the traditional definitions that we've had in the past are, are changing slightly. Uh, you know, in the past, the thought was agents, they represented the carrier and they sell the carrier's products. And I know that most of us can, and, and many of us are licensed as agents because that's what, you know, the state requires that we have a, an agent or, or broker license, what have you. But, but typically you would say the, the agents represented the carrier and they sold the carrier's products. Brokers, on the other hand, represented the client, but they also sell the carrier products and services. So it, it was clear that you know, while the broker might have an appointment to sell for that carrier, they were viewed as representing the client's uh, issues first uh, before that of the carrier. Uh, producers, now this is a term that's um, uh, become pretty common across the United States, especially since the National Association of Insurance Commissioners adopted this term, producers. They, they are uh, individual licensed uh, uh, persons who sell insurance products to consumers. Uh, you can call them, you know, they could be an agent, they could be a broker, uh, but, but if they're selling insurance products to consumers, they're, they're referred to as producers. And you'll see that term a lot here in California. And then there are advisors. These are those who uh, advise the client, and, but they may or may not sell products or services. So you can be an advisor, but you can also be an agent or broker. But, but if you post yourself saying, I'm an advisor, my, my job is to advise the client, and I may or may not make recommendations to, for certain uh, products and services for them to purchase. Uh, I like the term advisors, always have. I think it's more professional. Um, but advisors can be producers, and there's nothing, there's no conflict there. But clearly, advisors uh, says, you know, we we advise the client. They may not take our advice, but but we're providing them with important information. So there's two key legal issues here. An advisor should have an appointment with the carrier and must uphold the agreement that they have with the carrier, including the business associate agreement or BAA. And those of us who, who have carrier appointments, we all know that we sign the appointment uh, letter, which outlines our responsibilities and our compensation, but we also uh, sign a business associate agreement, which uh, has to do with privacy and, and responsibilities there. An advisor should be appointed as the client's exclusive broker of record, because ultimately when it's said and done, the client is the one who hires or fires the advisor. So if I'm an advisor, uh, I, I should give that client a broker of record uh, letter to them uh, to appoint me as their exclusive broker of record. That's, uh, that's pretty common in, in the PNC world, it's, um, and it needs to be more common in, in the employee benefits world. So what are the role of advisors or brokers today? Well, in addition to this new CAA disclosure requirement, uh, we tell brokers you might consider offering a two-way broker of record agreement with each client that lays these things out. First, the services that I provide you, my client. Second, how am I compensated for providing these services? And I can be compensated by 
commission or fee or both. Uh, third, uh, you, the client, appoint me as your exclusive broker of record. Fourth, you can pay me either a broker fee of X or a carrier commission of X, which offsets the broker fee or can offset the broker fee. Um, if either party choose to terminate the relationship, uh, a, an X uh, day written notice is required. And most brokers, you know, like a 30 day notice. And, and I think most most employers uh, do, do as well. Um, I'm not here today to provide you with a template of how this works, but I will tell you this, you might wanna Google uh, health insurance broker service agreements and you will see samples of various types of agreements like this that, that have these uh, factors in it. Uh, I would review this document annually with the client and share it with the carriers as needed. If I sit down with my client and I do a, a once a year uh, uh, policy renewal, and uh, I think I would include in that the uh, a new broker record uh, letter uh, that bring out all these things that I've stated above, have the client sign it, and, and then make sure that the carriers that we're working with see a copy of that. I know in many cases when you write a new client, uh, you, you don't really get a broker record letter. Uh, you, the, the client just signs a master application and says, I appoint uh, John Doe as my broker of record or John Doe and, and Harry Smith as my co-brokers of record. And that goes to that particular carrier and they go from there. I think the better step is to have the client not only sign that, what I just described, but also sign the two-way broker of record agreement that I've described above here, showing that you know John Doe and Harry Smith are my co-brokers of record, and this is what uh, I'm expecting them to provide in the way of service, and this is how much I'm going to uh, pay them. And uh, it's all very black and white, and then they keep that in their file because that's a, that's a legal document. I always get the question about broker fees and, and many states regulate broker fees. Some states do not. Uh, California has specific regulations dealing with broker fees in the PNC market, especially in the personal lines market, auto, home, uh, fire insurance, you know, that kind of thing. If you go to the CDI website, there is a summary of broker, uh, broker fee regulations. And again, it's, it's primarily focused on uh, property casualty uh, personal lines market, although it can be involved in some commercial lines uh, coverage like workers comp as well. Um, it, it will reference, again, auto home coverage specifically. It's silent on uh, other lines of coverage such as comp, health and life. But um, having been in the uh, comp side of the world for a, a few years, um, you you are allowed to charge broker fees and I would say that if you're charging a broker fee in workers comp you need to have the same uh, regulations guiding you on what you do and how you do it um, these by the way these broker fees were enacted several years ago because of a number of incidents where brokers were charging fees to write coverage in the california uh, auto assigned risk plan or the fair plan and there were a lot of uh, there were a lot of issues there that really uh, uh, really ticked off the uh, Department of Insurance. So they said, we're going to straighten all this out. It does require a formal broker agreement and a disclosure countersigned with the client. So it's, um, I, I would go to, if, you, if you've got a question about 
<clears throat> broker fees and, and want some guidance on how that can be done in California, I would go to that website and do it. Why do we care about this? Well, I think if broker fee regulations are expanded, for example, into the IFP market, the individual health market, I would expect that they would use these existing rules to apply somewhat in that market. Um, I, I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I know it's been contemplated a number of times over the past few years. And as there was a huge uh, upset in the individual IFP market about broker commissions, uh, you know, eight, nine years ago, when uh, the ACA came to pass, um, some of that's died out. I think the carriers have, have become a lot uh, easier to work with. But but I, I would say that there are some brokers out there that are trying to charge broker fees in the IFP market and there. I would advise them to consider how the broker fee regulations in the PNC market would, would apply in the same sense. Um, this is done in the large group in the self-funded market where the broker negotiates rates that are net of commission, and then they disclose their fee in advance and when, with a signed agreement that's in place. That's pretty common in the, the large group in the self-funded market. And then two overriding rules seem to apply here. Uh, first, that all fees and commissions have to be fully disclosed to the buyer. I think that's pretty evident. And all fees have to be reasonable. And that's an area, that's a that's an open legal fee issue that, uh, a legal issue that I, I think you need to think about. And, and that is this, um, there's a lot of, there over the years, there's been a lot of misunderstanding about how much brokers were, were making on, on commissions. I remember in one hearing I went into in Sacramento a few years ago, some representative of one of these consumer advocate groups got up and said that brokers selling health insurance were getting a 50% commission. And, um, and I, uh, I, I countered that and I said, would you please provide me the contract or the carrier that's paying brokers a 50% commission because I'm not aware of any of that. And we all know that wasn't true. Now there have been some, some goofy things happen over the years, especially with some of these MIWAs that used to be up and running and they were charging uh, paying brokers really absurd fees uh, for um, stuff that frankly, you know, just just smelled just smelled bad. So what you have is is you know what's the definition of reasonable? And if you say, well, look, the fee that I'm charging is equal to five percent of the the premium that's being uh, paid, and currently in the market, a five percent broker commission is considered to be a, a fair commission in in this market. Uh, you're probably not going to have a problem. But if if uh, somebody brought you before a judge and said, you know, how much commission are you making? Well, I'm making $250 per employee per month in a broker fee. And they're going to say, well, what's the, what's the normal broker fee? Well, uh, you know, it's whatever the client's willing to pay. And unfortunately, there are some clients out there that have no idea how that works. So you just need to be very careful and, and, and be able to defend what's, what's a reasonable fee. So let me, um, before we go to our last uh, polling question, which we'll, uh, uh, then we'll do some Q and A's, let me just kind of provide you a quick summary and, and conclusion about what, what we've got here. Uh, you know, the individual and small group markets are gonna continue to build in commission to their filed products. I don't, uh, I, I don't think this will happen overnight, but uh, you should expect that commissions will eventually change to PMPM fees. Uh, they're doing it in other states, and there are some cares that would like to do it here, but 
you know, they're kind of they're kind of being, you know, uh, kept at bay due to market issues. Uh, the large group market is going to continue to be much as it is today. I don't see a lot of changes there. You've got full disclosure uh, anyway, and, and fees are negotiable. Uh, federal law prohibits, and I know this comes up a lot, but the federal law prohibits uh, an association like uh, Kahu or Nahu from negotiating broker fees and commissions for their members. That's that's not what the association is is uh, allowed to do under under law. I know that there are a lot of brokers out there who used to come to me all the time and say, "How come how come Kahu can't negotiate uh, our you know with our carriers to for our commissions?" You know, and I say because we're not permitted to under federal law. Um, Consider what California, uh, Covered California did early on. They did not dictate commissions to the carriers. They encouraged carriers to use brokers. They partnered with brokers to help enroll consumers. And they believe that market forces prevail to the benefit of consumers when we're all following the same rules. And I, I really agree with that. I, th I think that made a lot of sense. And I will say that uh, in behalf of uh, Kahu and, and, and other broker organizations, uh, did a great job in, in helping uh, our, our friends at Covered California understand the role of the broker and what we did. In the California small group market, history will show that there is a delicate balance between carriers and producers when it comes to the carrier's success in selling to the public with or without the broker. You know, just like consumers, uh, brokers vote with their wallet uh, and, and, you know, brokers do the same thing. They if, if they feel like it's not worth their time and effort to sell a product because it doesn't pay enough, then they're just not going to sell it. Uh, you know, brokers are business people and they, they, they understand that. Some brokers will work for less money than others because they're working on the assumption that they're going to have a lot of volume to do that. And, and that can make sense. Brokers have a, a proven track record of success in helping consumers uh, get through a myriad of products, services, rules, and regulations of the private health insurance system, and, and we are we are very lucky, grateful that we st we still have a private system and that it's it's working. We have our problems, and you know the cost of healthcare continues to really plague this country, but um, it's it's great that we have that. And when you look at other uh, countries, uh, you know, in Western Europe especially. They're now introducing private insurance because the public plans cannot, they can't keep up with the demand and, and the cost of, of, of coverage. So that's, uh, that's to our favor. Okay, uh, last polling question, and uh, then we'll go into uh, Q&As. Uh, the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 requires broker disclosure if group compensation exceeds $500 annually, $1,000 annually, or $1,500 annually. And um, we'll give you guys a second to answer that and then uh, go from there. It looks like we've got about five, six minutes here to answer questions, Natalie. We do. Did you want to start now? Sure. Okay. Um, great. The first question is, I'm going to turn that off. How's that? Okay. <laughs> that works. Um, well, it's not more, of, it's more of a comment. So maybe if you want to like discuss it, um, this graph just reinforces that California brokers are undercompensated compared to the U.S. national average. Any thoughts on that? 
Well, it depends on, on, on which line of coverage, as I, as I said, and, and let me just go back to that slide. In the individual market, let's go to that one first. Uh, the California, uh, oh, as, of, as of 2020, the, Calif the California number was 1086. The national number was 1423. However, the year before that in 2019, it was 1115 and, and 979. I mean, there's, look at the variation there you know, year to year. So they, they haven't, they, they've been close, but I, I wouldn't say that necessarily over the long term, they've necessarily been uh, that much different. Uh, again, I'm, I'm not gonna dispute the fact that you can get more money in, in some other states uh, than others. Uh, that's the IFP market. In the small group market, which is one that I'm a lot more familiar with, the national average is 2254 and the California average is 2025, which you've got some states, in this case, New Hampshire, that reported 4674, which is incredibly high. And down there in, in Virginia, a, a buck 38. So I'm not sure that the California and the, um, uh, the national averages are that much different. But as you can see, there have been some years where they've been dramatically different than others. Um, uh, in the large group market, I, I think they're, they're still fairly close uh, at 997 versus 723. So again, I, you know, I'm not making any pronouncements, that, but uh, I, I think the data certainly tells the story, but you've got to look at the data over the long term. You know, again, this is over 10 years, and and I, I would continue to do that. You can't just rely on one year and say, well, that's that's the way it is and, and, and what have you. So that's how I would respond to that comment. Sounds good. Um, I want to close the poll. Um, this yes. is our last polling question, so I want to close it right now. And it looks like 83% voted 1,000 annually. Very good. You guys are good listeners. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Next question. Yeah. These numbers are based on only Kaiser's paid commissions. Is that correct? No. Specific no. These numbers are these numbers were the the, poll, the survey numbers that I gave you have nothing to do with Kaiser Permanente Insurance Company or Par Kaiser Permanente Health Plan. They were done by the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a totally separate entity uh that that operates as a as a nonprofit throughout the country they're 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 only related by name okay so they went into national databases um that are available that the carriers all provide you know the carriers file their their rates uh, i'm going to go back to this point right here and i'm, and I'm glad you brought this up but but again the, the, the sources of this information, the Kaiser Family Foundation analyzed data from the health coverage portal, which is a market database maintained by the Mark Fair Associates, which includes information from the NAIC, the California's DMHC, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And, and all of these different regulatory agencies collect this data from the carriers and then the, the firm Mark Fair Associates uh, blends this all together and provides market information. And then Kaiser went in, Kaiser Family Foundation went in and took that information. But again, I want to clarify, these numbers that you see here are not based on Kaiser rates, okay? These are based on 
national averages, uh, again here, or California averages, or the highest uh, carrier or the lowest carrier reported in the database. Thanks for allowing me to clarify that. Go ahead. Is the $1,000 commission, I'm sorry, compension requirement an annual compensation or lifetime? It's annual. How? And, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's, it, does with, it applies to group health plans. That's what the law currently says. If you're expecting to make $1,000 or more in compensation from a group health plan, then you should dis provide disclosure. How, if at all, will this be enforced built into DOL audits? Well, that's yet to be seen, to be candid with you. Uh, while the Department of Labor does have responsibility for enforcing this, and um, I, I, here's how I think it will work, and this is only my opinion. I can't say that they've come out with a regulation saying this way we're going to do it. It's like any federal law. They pass it, and then they, they work out the details for the years afterwards. Think about how many years it took for regulations to be issued after the ACA was passed into law. We're still getting regulations. So here's the way I think it's going to happen. Um, an employer files a complaint, or oh no, here's a, here's, a, here's a better one. An employee files a complaint against their employer with the Department of Labor, okay? Maybe it's a complaint about, hey, my health plan costs too much money, or I was discriminated against and couldn't enroll for coverage. But, but some consumer out there files a complaint with the Department of Labor, and it's done all the time. And so they, they uh, contact the Department of Labor and they say, hey, my employer is doing this. So the Department of Labor then contacts the employer and say, uh, a complaint has been filed against you by one of your employees, and uh, we're going to do an audit and um, please produce the following things for us. And this is like the summary plan description requirements, you know. So they'll go to the employer and they'll say, we wanna see an SBD and we wanna see your plan documents, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and we also wanna see your broker disclosure form, okay? Now you say, well, how do they know there's a, a broker involved? Well, that's pretty easy because a broker disclosure form is, uh, first off, broker, compensation is going to be disclosed under 5,500 if you're a large employer. But if you're a small employer, they're going to say, do you have a, a broker and uh, do you have a signed disclosure form? And at that point, uh, they'll look and they'll say, well, you, you don't seem to have a broker disclosure form here. So we're going to contact your broker and uh, possibly slap his or her hand because they haven't provided this. And unless you have proof that you provided your client with that, uh, I suggest that you make a copy of that and you certify it and you have the client uh, cross sign it and, and date it so that you can say, no, I'm, I, I gave this to my client. They just apparently misplaced it, but this is what I have in my file. Uh, so that's how I think this would be enforced. It would, it would come from a complaint filed. I don't think that the Department of Labor is going to go out and conduct this massive uh, um, audit of, of all of these employers in the country to say, do you have a broker disclosure form? Now, could they could they send something out to brokers and say, uh, we'd like to see uh, we'd like to see copies of your broker disclosure forms, um, and uh, you could get audited by the Department of Labor for that. Uh, but 
last time I looked, you know, the Department of Labor is uh, understaffed, kind of like the IRS right now. So I think it'll happen the, the former way, not the latter way. That's just my opinion, though. Next question. How do you get paid as an advisor? Well, again, some advisors charge a fee. Some advisors uh, receive a commission. Um, some advisors charge a fee that's uh, a flat fee. Some advisors charge a per employee per month uh, uh, fee. Uh, they may sign, uh, have the client sign an agreement that says, I'm going to pay you as my advisor uh, commission uh, on any insurance products that I purchase. And uh, according to you, that commission is going to be 5% or whatever of what the carrier um, uh, you know, charges me. So typically advisors can charge a fee or they can earn a commission. They could say, here's the fee that we, that we would charge. We will offset that fee by any commissions that we receive. And some clients will agree to that. Other clients might say, look, I just want you to be paid a fee. It's between you and I. And I want all of the premium rates to be net of commissions, which is possible to do in the large group market, but not really feasible to do in the individual and small group market because commissions are built into the premiums. Hope that answers your question. Next question. Disclosure of compensation. Do you recommend reaching the group clients about this new compensation disclosure now or wait till Renova time? Also, well, I can. I, I know a lot of brokers who went ahead and sent out the disclosure uh, in December, even though they didn't have to until they, their clients came up for renewal after uh, December 27th of last year. So some brokers will wait until they come up for their next renewal after December 27th. I think a lot of others just sent out a, a, um, a disclosure notice to all of their clients uh, dated, dated before <laughs> Uh, December 27th. I think if, even if it was dated after December 27th, it really wouldn't matter. So you could do it all at once or you could do it as they come up for renewal. Um, I, I think the law technically states that it has to be done by their renewal uh, after December 27th of, of last year. PMPM fees, what is that? Per member per month as opposed to per employee per month. So I got a group and uh, it has uh, 20 employees and it has uh, an additional um, 10 uh, spouses and children. So there's a total of, of 20 plus 10 or 30 members in the group as opposed to 20 employees in the group. It's the same old baloney, it's just sliced a different way. If, you're, if your fee, if, you, if you're saying the fee I'm gonna charge you is $20 per employee per month and there's 20 employees in the in the group that's a $400 a month fee but if you said well I want the fee to be per member per month uh, and you have a way to calculate each month what the member count is which is a lot harder to do uh, than the employee count which is a lot easier then you would take that $400 and divide it by 30 as opposed to 20 um, and and do it that way but it's either per member per month or per employee per month. Per employee per month tends to be the easier way to do it. With COVID, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised there would be a payout for the MLR. Does this mean the carriers in the last two years played claims on the reserves they're required to have? 
Hmm, that's a tougher one. My, um, you might, there was just a, um, you know, the Kaiser Family Foundation put out a, uh, a notice just this week about upcoming MLR uh, rebates uh, in the fall. You might Google that and see they, they did a very, um, I, I thought they did a very good job of explaining what was going on there. But, but my sense is this, I, we all know that the carrier's loss ratios were were lower than normal in 2020 and to a, great, a less degree 2021. And their loss ratios have definitely uh, uh, picked up uh, this year. Um, obviously the, the law states that, you know, when you, when you do an MLR rebate, so for example, the MLR rebate that I'm supposed to pay this year will be based on my 2021 experience, okay? So I'll, I'll look at my paid claims versus my, my incurred and paid claims versus my um, uh, premium for that calendar year. And then they have until I, I think uh, 10 months uh, to pay out the rebate, calculate and pay out the rebate. I, I, I don't have that exact date, but I, I know it's in the fall of the following year. So yeah, do I think that were some rebates paid out last year because 2020 had a lower claims uh, year. I also know that there was a lot of uh, extra reserving done in anticipation of more COVID claims and whether or not the regulatory agencies permitted them to beef up their, their um, reserves that year because of the unknown of, of what COVID was going to cost. Uh, I suspect that there were some uh, exceptions made to that normal rule in 2020. I don't know if that carried over to this year, but according to the report that I read this week from Kaiser, uh, I think this is going to be the first year that you know things are back to normal, so to speak, and the rebates are going to be paid out. I wish I could give you more than that, but I, I don't really have it. Next question. Is the broker disclosure requirement the same for group and individual business? Nope, it applies to group. Do we have to send the broker compensation every year upon group renewal? In, I think the spirit of the law is that you, you, you have to give it to them initially. And if there is a change in compensation or a change in services, you need to update that each year. That, that's the way I read the rule. Okay. So if you're, if you're getting a commission, if you're, Commissions are changing from the carrier. They come back and they say, we're, we're reducing your commissions this next year. Then yes, I would reflect that in an updated uh, compensation disclosure agreement. Next question. Um, I do want to clarify, yes, though, um, this is right now, this portion is a question and answer portion. So the CE part of the webinar has ended. So if you want, you can just stay for more information. Next question, just to clarify, are brokers able to charge broker fees for IFP plans. How about under Covered California? Well, I think at this point, Covered California is not permitting uh, brokers to do that. Um, and, and I'm not aware of any brokers that are charging a broker fee to sell individual and family coverage, individual coverage. Um, do I think it's been tried? And may it be done somewhere? Yes, it, it probably has been tried and it may be done. Um, but 
because the carriers really, you know, you have to look at your carrier contract. And if your carrier contract says, you, you know, uh, you're only permitted to receive the commission or the fees that we're going to pay you to place this business, you cannot charge any additional fees. I think a lot of brokers would say, well, then I, I, I'm not going to charge a broker fee. On the other hand, if you're acting purely as a consultant and you're not going to make any commission or even place the business with the carrier directly, uh, but you're just providing you know, advice, uh, much like an attorney or an accountant, then you can. I think you can charge a fee and say that I'm charging you this fee to advise you, but it is, uh, it, it, you know, I am not being paid any commissions or compensation from the carrier. It's just a lot harder in California to do that when all of the carriers have built in their commissions and broker fees and their contracts with brokers, I think many times address this, that we're not allowing you to charge an extra fee on top of this. So I would, I would look at your 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 contract with that carrier to see what they're going to permit you to do. I think the majority of them are, are saying we won't permit you to do that. Next question. Is there a way that the carriers can build in the broker comp disclosure into the master app? Well, uh, I don't think you want that. Okay. You know, as you know, when you when you fill out a master app or or an individual app, and there's a spot in there to designate who your broker of record is. In theory, that is uh, that's legally binding in that you, you, the carrier agrees that they're going to pay you the broker a commission because you're appointed as this client's broker of record. And if the client decides to change the broker of record later, uh, he sent he has to give a, a, a completely separate letter to the carrier, uh, not fill out a new master app, but just give a care and say, I wanna change my broker to John Doe instead of Harry Smith. And um, and so the carrier says, okay, we'll, we'll acknowledge that. I'm not sure that um, the CAA considers that to be fair disclosure, okay? Because number one is that when I sign a master application, when I fill out a master application, it, 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 it provides general things that I as a broker am supposed to do, but it doesn't get into the amount of compensation I'm being paid, and it doesn't get into the intricacies of the services that I'm providing. And I don't think that's what the CAA contemplates as being a solution there. I think you have to have a separate agreement, in this case with a, a small group client, uh, that that discloses what your compensation is and what services you're providing. And it has to be separate of the carrier agreements that have been signed. If you're already getting paid commission, how, how whoever small it might be, is that ethical to charge an additional percentage as a fee? Well, Okay, there's two issues here. There's ethical and there's legal. Okay, from a, from a legal perspective, you can't go in and say to the client, "Look, uh, I'm currently I'm currently being paid a five percent commission from your carrier to handle this, and I can't do this work for five percent. So I want you to authorize the carrier to pay me more." And of course, the carrier is going to say, "Sorry, we don't do that. We build five percent into our rates. Take it or leave it." At that point in time 
you would have a discussion with the client and say, look, I, I cannot service your account for 5%. Here are all the things that I do, and here are all the people that I employ, and this is what they do. And, and frankly, I, I, I need to get an average, and I'm just saying this as an average, I need uh, uh, $20 per employee per month to service your account. And right now, based on this commission, I'm only getting um, um, $10 uh, per employee per month. So I, I need to charge you uh, an additional $10 per employee per month so that my income on your account brings me up to this level. I can, I can accept part of that as commission, income from the carrier, but the rest of it you're gonna to have to pay for. Now, is that ethical? I, I think it's ethical, especially if you're disclosing what you do and how you do it, and you're not trying to hide it, uh, and you're having a face-to-face, -face, honest conversation with the client about what you provide and how this happens. And if the client is a, a, a business person of, of any knowledge, they'll understand that you can't operate a business uh, at a loss. So, um, and unfortunately, your hands are tied about how much commission you can earn. So it's it's a matter of saying, look, you know, before you go out, run out to a client and want to have this kind of discussion, Nick, you need to see what your what your expenses and costs are and and what your margin is. I I know agents out there who work for agencies and they're told. You cannot sell uh, a, a group policy to somebody that generates less than $5,000 a year of commission, okay? If it's under $5,000 of commission, we don't permit you to write it, and uh, we're not going to pay you for it if you did write it, okay? So so in their mind, a, a $5,000 a year commission is kind of the, you know, the, the minimum that they do here. And there are agencies that will have that discussion with their clients and say, look, we, we can't do this without so much compensation. Um, if you want to give me, a, whoever asked this question, if you want to give me a call and chat about this, we can certainly talk about, you know, what some agents are doing. But again, it goes back to the fact that being open and transparent to your client about the services you provide and how much compensation you need to provide that service. That's and, and to me, that's ethical and and it's legal. Okay. Next question. Let's see. Is it possible to see a sample of the broker disclosure for small groups that is used with Dickerson? Um, if you, um, uh, we sent one out to a lot of our brokers back in December. Uh, if you, um, if you send uh, an email to uh, to me, I'll be happy to send a copy of that template back to you. Do we as brokers have to disclose an exact number for the potential compensation to be received in the course of the year, or just that we are getting compensated by the carrier? Uh, I think I think that uh, saying, look, I'm, I'm paid a 5% a commission from this carrier for your account, I think is, is, is fine, uh, a percentage. If you're getting a PMPM, disclose what that is. But as you know, the, the premium that the client pays varies by month to month depending on what their headcount is so I, I i on the broker disclosures that we sent out uh, to, to our clients um we just put down you know here's the carrier that you're with uh you know it's it's anthem blue cross or it's or it's um kaiser permanent or whomever and then we indicated on that the line of coverage is group health insurance uh with the, the carrier name and we're receiving a, a five percent uh, commission uh, each month. 
and that and that meets the requirements of the law. Great. Do you know if hospitals receive federal funds for COVID, thereby reducing claims to carriers? I don't know. I, I I think they do, but I I couldn't be 100% sure on that. Perfect. Okay. Um, didn't you send? I'm sorry. If we haven't done a disclosure yet, is it better? Is it a better late than never situation? Yep. Any penalties yes. for being? Okay. Yep. I think it's better late than never. Great. And then the last question we have is, didn't you send out just the non-suggested template for broker comp, or do you have another one? I'm sorry, say that again. Didn't you didn't you just send out the NAHU suggested template for broker compensation, or do you have another one? We, I think we shared both with brokers. Uh, when NAHU came out with one in, in uh, October, November, we sent that out. And of course, you know, nobody pays attention, right? So we got a lot of brokers asking us uh, if, if we had another template. And so we developed one with our attorney and we sent that out to a lot of our brokers uh, in, uh, uh, in early December. Okay, perfect. It looks like that's all the questions that we received. Um, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dave, as always, for such an, a detailed and four-minute presentation. Um, of course, if you have any questions regarding the subject matter, definitely go ahead and give send Dave an email. If you have questions regarding any issues that you had um, with CE credits or even just, at, even just answering poll questions, my email is right on top of that. It's natalie, N-A-T-A-L-I-E-C at dickerson-group.com. Once again, everyone, thank you for joining us. Um, we're going to post a link on this website, to this webinar on our website within the next 24, 24 to 48 hours. And of course, um, like I said, if you have any questions, go ahead and feel free to give us a shout out. Um, our next webinar is on June 16th. Um, and that is also another CE presentation. And it will start at 1130 with both myself and Dave as well. Um, Dave, once again, thank you so much for your presentation and thank you everyone for joining us and have a wonderful, great rest of your Thursday and start to your weekend very soon. Bye. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.